this is the place where we talk about preparing for and navigating adulthood, a space for autistic individuals, families, professionals, and other community stakeholders to get information and resources when it comes to this particular area. We talk about employment, education, high school, college, independence, all of those areas, and connect you to people and organizations that are doing work in this community, as well as share some resources that we've created here at Autism Grown Up. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Regan, and I'm also the executive director of Autism Grown Up. You can check us out at autismgrownup.com and continue listening to this episode. Welcome to this week's episode of the Autism Grown Up podcast. Today, I'll be sharing my interview with Haley Moss. And the timing is great on this because we are all working together within the autism grown-up community from self-advocates, families, and professionals to celebrate Autistic Adults Day on April 18th. You can learn more information about this movement on our website, autismgrownup.com. Join us in the community there because we have exciting, engaging things on our website and our community. And you can also help us spread the word on your social media platforms and whatever Whatever platform you use, we are there and we'll give you a shout out. Make sure to use hashtag Autistic Adults Day on or around April 18th. And now a little bit about Haley Moss. If you haven't heard of her, she's just so incredible. She is one of my favorite autistic leaders in the community that I like to follow on social media. She's an autistic advocate, attorney, artist, author, and speaker. And she is passionate about so many interests when it comes to disability inclusion, autism, neurodiversity in the workplace, employment policy, accessibility, and lawyers and disabilities. We actually touch on all of these areas in our interview. And we do some deep dives and discuss finding and pursuing your interests, pushing through to your goals, and the importance of finding and listening to autistic self-advocates within the autism space. And before we get started, I want to give a shout out, first of all, to our podcast crew at Patreon. They help us financially with their hearts, produce these episodes, and to join the crew and support future episodes of the AGU podcast, you can go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash autism grown up. Now, let's jump into my interview with Haley Moss. Hey, Haley, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So great to have you here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you and your work in the autism community? Absolutely. So I am an autistic attorney, author, artist, and advocate. That's kind of the best way that I like to describe myself. So I am an attorney by trade. I was sworn in a little over a year ago. I was practicing in healthcare litigation and anti-terrorism type stuff. So I did international law. I had a lot of fun, but realized as well that I'm super passionate about disability advocacy and also just having autistic people in jobs and employment. And I also love speaking and educating as compared to litigation at times too. And I think that education is such a powerful tool. So a lot of what I've been doing recently has been a lot of writing. I've been traveling the country and speaking, just doing all sorts of really exciting stuff to help get the word out about disability employment, about autism and women, just different topics surrounding the disability and autism communities. And it really is a huge joy. It is so exciting. I love what I do. And I really think that it's amazing that I have this opportunity. But at the same time, I also wish that this work didn't exist because we were so inclusive and accepting overall. 
So it's kind of a very interesting way to look at it. And again, it's just really something that I'm passionate about more than anything. I also have written two books. I am an artist. So I actually started off as a teen artist. So when I was a kid as well, I always used to draw a lot. And my early artwork actually went to benefit autism charities and stuff, which is why if you follow me on social media, art is still in all my usernames because Mm -hmm. everyone goes, why? Your name isn't Moss Art. I'm like, yeah, but art was so much of who I was and all of my social media accounts when I signed up as a 15-year-old were the fact that they were from my artwork. So (laughs) sometimes, so sometimes even though I might not be as active in illustrating anymore, even though I really want to get back to doing it more often, it still is such a huge part of who I am. So I do like to share that and mention it from time to time. I'm glad you did mention that because yeah, that will be all linked in your social media. Is <laughs> <laughs> now you remember you po- posting about that fairly recently online because you're very active online too, just sharing the work you're doing. And there's just a lot of you're writing a lot and speaking a lot. Well, not right now, but before, yeah. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, I mean, there's so many pathways we could go here because you are. Would you say like you're multi-passionate or you just pursue your interests and like that just becomes a part of your identity there's just a lot of stuff that I enjoy yeah. <laughs> that's what, I mean and why not just try and go for what you enjoy and love and exactly and if you're my mom you're, you're also like but you're also good at those things I'm like yeah I, I wish that it was just like one thing that I was singularly interested in but I like everything so I kind of try to dip into things that I like and that I enjoy that make me happy and hopefully benefit other people. Absolutely. I think, and I, that's a, also an amazing piece of this because a lot of, I mean, you got a lot of press maybe was like over a year ago when you passed mm-hmm. the bar and became the first openly autistic lawyer. For Florida. Because I, I know that, so the thing with openly autistic lawyers, and I know this sounds kind of weird to bring it up sometimes, is I'm not the first in the country. I'm not history's first. And I always like to make that clear. And what happens with being open is a lot of people are on the spectrum and are lawyers, but they won't tell an employer. They won't tell other people because, at least in legal, any kind of thing that makes you different or deficit makes you can be perceived as a weakness. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people don't disclose. It's kind of a like less than 1% of attorneys self-disclose having a disability overall. So we kind of are like unicorns in that regard. I think it's super interesting and it's sad that we aren't disclosing as much, but I do know plenty of autistic attorneys and young attorneys as well that graduated or got sworn in around the same time I did, which is really awesome. And I love that there's a bunch of autistic law students now that look to us that are open and how to navigate that too. And also seasoned lawyers that will reach out to me and say hey I've been practicing for like 20 something years but I've never been open before or I'm just starting to be open what advice do you have so it's really interesting kind of seeing how legal has changed and has run with this idea of being openly autistic as well Mm -hmm. but I don't feel I I know I'm not the first and I know I'm not going to be the last so that makes me pretty excited. So have you noticed uh, you said that you have more people reaching out to you in the the law community from those who are who are practicing lawyers to those who are starting school so have you noticed additionally like is there like a shift in need for policy or just more discussions about autism disability neurodiversity 
I think it's a little bit of everything. So I think policy is something that affects everybody, no matter who you are. I love policy, especially because this year happens to be the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, Mm -hmm. which is actually one of my favorite things to get to talk about. So I actually still, we were talking before the show about research. A lot of my law review research and legal research that I've done in my non-practicing life have been surrounding the ADA. So it's kind of like a pet project for me is how much I love that package of legislation and where I think it needs more work. Yeah. So it's really interesting, especially as the conversation evolves, so does the policy. So I think the conversation kind of comes first. And I think conversation is accessible to everybody because policy should be, but isn't necessarily accessible. Like I've had to explain to PhD students the intricacies of the ADA, even though they, they can tell me all about injustice and disability justice from that perspective and from a very academic and social perspective and teaching about models of disability and different labor movements and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. They, don't under, they don't always understand the intricacy of the law or how courts have interpreted it over and over. And a lot of what I notice is how they interpret what is a reasonable accommodation, for instance. So going through that is a whole other subset of policy. But talking about and just educating that, yes, someone has to be able to provide a reasonable accommodation that might look like this, this, or this is a lot more accessible, a lot more, you know, digestible to the average person. So having conversations generally is really, really helpful, I think, for anybody, no matter who you are. And it's not very hard to get on board with the notion that people with disabilities, one, are people, and two, should be included and part of every type of activity that our society has to offer. So I see it very, very two-dimensional, three-dimensional, I think, I guess is probably the word I'm looking for, mm-hmm. is, that you can't, is that it's an evolving conversation and then you can get people into the weeds if you really want to about, this is the injustice that plagues our community. This is the problem. This is how we can solve it. But if you don't want to get into the activism fight, you can make your home more accessible. You can make sure that your your students are including kids with disabilities in their activities. You can just make sure that like little tiny things are happening. Even being asked to join a social group can mean the world, and that does not require any knowledge of the ADA or any of the different laws and legislation that protects people with disabilities. Yeah, it's a, those are great examples of opportunities for inclusion and promoting the ideals of ADA and how it can look like in practice. I wanted to ask you, uh, especially as you are shifting toward doing more speaking and writing, so what are some topics that have been important to you? So topics that are really important to me are neurodiversity in the workplace. So I absolutely love the idea of us being recruited and hired and included at work and also being able to move up. I have all sorts of different opinions on the matter. I think that we're off to a really great start, but I think that it needs to be more widespread and also across different industries. Mm -hmm. So if you kind of see who the leaders are in recruiting and hiring for people who are neurodivergent or autistic, it's very concentrated in certain professions or certain lines of work, and I don't think that's how it should be. So that's kind of something that I'm passionate about. I'm also passionate a lot about women's issues on the spectrum. So I feel like autistic women don't get talked about as much as they should. Same with our friends who are non-binary or LGBTQ+, but those aren't experiences that I have necessarily. So I like to talk mostly about women and girls because those experiences are completely different in terms of how we present, why we present that way, different issues that affect us about 
healthcare just is very, very nuanced and it's really fun for me to talk about. Mm-hmm. I also like to motivate people. I like to talk about college. I love to talk about higher ed, which is no secret based on how much I also love to research things like testing accommodations. Go figure. <laughs> it, that's like the nerdiest thing about me is that most of my research has ended up coming in, into this realm of testing accommodations. And if you ask me about what testing facilities and, te- and test administrators can do it, I could probably tell you all about it, but it really isn't that super, super interesting that I'd like to dedicate that much time to saying what they can and can't do. Okay. But it's just kind of, but it's kind of just like a fun aside of that's my, something I know a lot about in higher ed. Yeah. So for testing accommodations, just briefly, do you mean <laughs> in, in terms I of- I feel like this is going to get edited out. <laughs> <laughs> so not, so I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to you. This is like not the thing that I thought I'd be talking about. <laughs> It's just something I I happen to know a lot about because I also spent the last like three days editing stuff on it. <laughs> oh, which is perfect timing because I think we have a lot of listeners, well, all over the age span and level of support too. But I know parents would be curious about like what you mean in terms of like is it testing accommodations for exams or for overall classroom accommodations? It's mostly exams in higher ed. So so most of my, my interest is exams that come after school. So if you're taking like a bar exam or you're taking like a grad school admissions test, because they're not administered by the schools, they're administered by independent companies mm-hmm. and organizations. So it's really interesting. Or in the case of like the bar, it's actually the state. Yes. So, so they have to follow Title II of the ADA, like things like that. It gets, you know, that's when it gets not fun to talk about. I gotcha. Yeah. It's be like it's like like I I just did all the research on the bar exam, and the bar exam is basically just because each bar is administered by the state because it's underneath like the state supreme court. They have to follow this segment of the ADA, and they have to because they are considered a state or government entity. They are required to comply with this, and then it's basically all determining what is reasonable. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in and in terms of the bar, they also have the application process before you take the test or after as well, like depending. And they do like a background investigation and a lot of states ask about applicants' mental health. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge fight to get those questions removed because it is discriminatory under the ADA. Yeah. Or it could be perceived as such. So it's determining is it discrimination? Do you have to provide this? Why is it also affecting that law students aren't seeking help or things like that too? So it's very like, like that's kind of the, the gist mm-hmm. of what goes on in that world. And also just, and what used to happen is like the LSAT, for instance, used to flag scores that if you received an accommodation, like extra time, it, they would, you get your score, but it would also trigger a flag that would send to, for instance, like an admissions committee that said, this test was not taken under standard conditions and everybody knew exactly what that meant. It meant that the test taker has a disability. Mm. So it was very interesting to see how that discriminates or would throw students under the bus, so to speak. Yes. So that's kind of all the interesting stuff that goes on in testing world. Just in case you wanted to know something that you would have probably never known anything about. I wouldn't have. That's, I mean, I mean, because most people, most people don't know about this and it's like, I'm trying to think of how I can make this accessible to the average person because I have had to learn about this for like three years. <laughs> Probably mean- more at this point. I think I, I started working on this when I was a 2L. So that was probably 2017. 
2016-2017 so I've been working on testing accommodation stuff for a a while now so it's kind of beaten into me (laughs) that's how I feel like I am about self-advocacy stuff and autistic teens because that's all I did for like six years in my grad program I love so I want to talk more about self-advocacy and autistic teens with you like after the fact because I think that stuff is so much fun yeah we definitely should especially since you're working on something related to it yeah oh my gosh we can definitely oh for sure yeah, um, but I didn't really, I didn't even think about that because I think back to when I took the GRE with testing accommodations because they do ask for those. They realize mm-hmm. that can be flagged. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a, yeah, definitely something to get into for another time because I think that's a huge issue. And I'm sure that comes up with SAT, ACT, all of those high school prep. Um, yeah, they, they, they used to do flagging and stuff too, but I think that their, their processes for like getting accommodations has changed. I'm not a hundred percent certain. Interesting. Um, because I don't, I try not to spend time too much in the, in like sec- secondary and primary yeah. when it comes to testing because other things are in factor. So obviously, you know, that, that people have I- IEPs and things when they're younger and I like it in a higher ed and post higher ed situations because you don't see IEPs as much or anything because IEPs are for secondary and below. Mm-hmm. And 504 plans might be a thing. They might not be there. And it's just ADA. And it's a lot different when you don't have children or also when you're an adult, sometimes you might not have had that history of disability accommodation, for instance, because as you get older, your needs might change or you might've had a different disability with onset in later life, like say, MS or something, or you might be from a lower SES where you might not have been tested for ADHD and you've been self-accommodating for years and years. And how does that play into when you actually need something at this point in your life? So true. And unfortunately, that's like a, such a small segment of people with disabilities at that point who get there. Mm-hmm. Like if you made it that far on your own, that people are going to have a presumption of you could continue doing it on your own, but yeah. you finally had access to service. <laughs> that could actually help you and help you just support you get to your next goal I'm like that was a very long tangent <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it so much I think people will get so much out of that um, um I don't know because I'm sitting here like oh god I can't believe I just <laughs> geeked out about testing oh man well we haven't even done so we've done like over 50 episodes at this point but like you know the breadth of like autism and adulthood is huge um, absolutely and if it's that interesting you could, we can always distill it into more than one episode or something absolutely that's what I was thinking because we haven't really done any college specific series or post-secondary options um, oh I'd love I would love to do something like that with you because I think that's really because that stuff I think is really fun me too yeah I did some work in that too so well I'm gonna jot that down and <laughs> save that for later. <laughs> yeah so kind of shifting to um what you've learned along the way as like your own major self-advocate, um, but of course have had your own support network too. What have you learned along the way that's important for others to know? I think what's important for others to know is that you got this and you are ready for the world, even if it's not ready for you and it's your job to help change that. So find your people who love and support you, act, pursue the things that actually interest you and make you excited and I think that's what's really important. And it's also, and find a way to communicate that feels natural and good for you too. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a very 
I always have a lot of different advice depending on where people are coming from. And especially with parents, please encourage your kiddos and adult kids as well to do things that they care about and they love and to foster that talent and things that they enjoy. We also have, um, that's such an important message for parents. I almost think that I need to like break that question down even more so because we have such a big group Mm -hmm. or varied group. So I often get self-advocates in our community, community, excuse me, um, who mm-hmm. have a lot of interests there. They have some idea about where they would want to go to school or they're interested in pursuing this type of career, but they just they feel like they keep hitting a wall, whether that's through um, their own self-confidence or resources in their community. What would you recommend for those who just keep coming into that wall and but do want to pursue their interests and dreams I think if you're hitting the wall it's sometimes time to take stock of what's around you so why are you hitting the wall is it something that society has in the way is it something that you're doing that maybe you shouldn't be or just adjust your approach and also again don't be afraid to ask for help so what I've kind of learned is we we think about independence a lot as a goal especially in disability spheres right And the thing with independence is, and I'm still having to remind myself of this a lot, independence does not mean you have to do it by yourself. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of us think that being independent means that I am the only one who can do this. I can do it by myself with no help. I can just fly and be me. And that's not necessarily true. Being independent also means recognizing when you need help from other people. And it doesn't make you less independent that you need support in some way. Like, I need support cleaning my house. Does that mean that I'm not an independent person, for instance, or that I can't park my car to save my life because I can't. I can't figure out the spatial relationship to park between the lines. I don't know how that hasn't happened. I genuinely feel frustrated about it on a regular basis when I sit down to think about the fact that it's like, okay, I could pass the bar. I could hold the job. I could do all this other stuff, but I can't freaking park the car. Like, like when I think about it like that, I get really down on myself. And I want to kind of reiterate, like, that doesn't mean I can't be independent or I can't have help. Like, I used ride chairs. I'd get rides from friends, public transportation. And even now that I'm spending more time at home, I would really like to work on those skills, especially because the nice thing with everyone being out, for instance, is that, yeah, if I want to, all the parking lots are empty. So I could probably learn to park really, really well and not hit anybody. Yeah, I think that's really key that I think gets overlooked or oversimplified with when we're talking about independent skills there's almost this level of interdependence like where we have mm-hmm. to know that we ev- like we see our parents having to navigate the world together or with other people mm-hmm. the support of other people for our, it's like also listed as a sub skill sometimes with independence of like being able to ask others for help but then there's that that line that we put on it of like well you're supposed to be able to do these things by yourself by now you're supposed to have know when and how often to clean your room like those types mm-hmm. of and I still don't know the answer to that I saw someone say you're supposed to clean your your mirrors like every week and I'm like I can't tell you the last time I cleaned my mirrors. Me neither. Like, like in my, like in my bathroom. Yeah. If someone said you need to do it every week, and I went, "Oh my god, I think I did that like a month ago, maybe." And it's like I wouldn't have thought to include that in the list because normally I think surfaces and floors and making sure there's no clothes on the floor or on the chair. Right. <laughs> 
yeah exactly and like knowing like what works for you kind of going back to what you said earlier um, uh-huh. and having to adjust when you do feel like you're hitting a wall um, and give yourself grace when that happens uh-huh. thank you for saying that um that will be definitely a great pull quote uh, for many people in our community very valuable um uh-huh. so what are some common resources or tools you've turned to or would recommend others to use so my first thing with resources is, you know, there's, we all know there's a lot out there and it's hard to sort through everything. Yeah. I think it also depends where you are in life. And my first kind of tidbit, especially for parents is listen to autistic people. So you get a lot of information and this conversation is really, really broad. Mm-hmm. And we hear a lot. I always like to kind of back it up with who are we hearing a lot from and who aren't we hearing a lot from? And when you look at most medical conditions, it's pretty obvious who you hear from. You hear from, like, the family members, you hear from the doctors, and then you hear from the patients themselves. But in autism, it's not that you don't necessarily hear from autistic people. It's that the resources aren't as easily available on a Google search, for instance. So sometimes it's harder to get those firsthand and personal perspectives because the conversation is primarily dominated by parents, professionals, teachers, et cetera, et cetera family members. So it kind of is important to seek out those voices because you can understand what's going on in your world as an autistic person or the person you love's world. So I think those resources are super valuable. So mm-hmm. I like to send people the way of the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network and the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network for those two things mm-hmm. as starting points. Obviously, you can go through blogs and different articles that people like me have written as well. I love to get to talk about myself and my experience and make it as accessibly as humanly possible. I've gotten to write for places like the Washington Post. It's awesome. And it also makes me feel super proud to say that I've gotten to write for someone like them. So there's all sorts of resources like that as well. I also think there's a lot of really great books out there too. I, If you're looking for publishers that usually do a lot of autism books, usually Jessica Kingsley Publishers and Autism Asperger Publishing Company, as well as Future Horizons, all do a lot of autism and disability-related resources. So they always usually have a pretty good catalog. I have written both with AAPC and Jessica Kingsley. Jessica Kingsley is also moving more in a neurodiversity direction, which I think is wonderful. So I've seen that their catalog continue to evolve as the times have, and that makes me really, really excited. So there's resources like that. Again, see who's in your local community as well. So here in South Florida, I know our resources. We have schools. We have different nonprofits. I personally serve on the board of the University of Miami and Nova Southeastern Center for Autism and Related Disabilities. We serve over 12,000 families in the South Florida Tri-County area, and it's no cost to families to get referrals, to get Uh, in our constituency bases. We run programs, all sorts of great stuff. I know that I also serve on the board of Unicorn Children's Foundation down here. Like, There's all sorts of resources in your local community, and that's also a great place to start if you're looking for support groups, if you're looking to see what practitioners might be around. So that's always a really great place to start, too, and sometimes you can find those organizations if you don't know where to look at your local universities as well. Fantastic. That's like such a great wealth of resources from online to local community wise. Uh, I feel like people forget about local communities a lot. Yeah. 
especially because when you do meet people like I do as well, people are very looking straight to online or they're thinking of this as a very national or international conversation, which it is. Mm -hmm. But as well, please keep in mind who's in your local community because without your local community partners and organizations, you might not be able to get the services you need today. Is I look at it as what happens in D.C. is wonderful and affects me. But if the organizations that are advocating for me in D.C. disappeared, I wouldn't feel it as quickly as I would feel it as if the people advocating for me at the state level disappeared, if the people that are working for me and bringing services at the county level or the city level disappeared. Yeah. That if the people that disappear that are in my town or, my, or the tri-county area down here, if they were gone, I'd feel it right away. Right. And for those who aren't in the like very community resource rich areas, they definitely feel the, the gaps in their communities. Absolutely. I was just in Alaska a couple of weeks ago and there, the big organization there serves the entire state. And they would bring specialists and special educators all throughout. So Alaska also has like remote villages and places that if you're lucky, it's on the road system. That would be kind of one of the okay. ways they would tell me how big a place is, is, is it on the road system? Because I got to go travel with them and got to bring education all throughout the state for eight days. That's a whole adventure. We could spend the whole day talking about but my point is that in, in those more rural communities or might not be part of a major metropolitan area like South Florida, for instance, that those organizations might be statewide or they might be able to bring resources to you with specialists or they might, or especially right now in the age of teleconferencing and Zoom and things like that too, that you might be able to get those training and resources far more accessibly than ever before too. So it's all out there. You just have to know where to look and where to start. So it might not be someone in your city, but it might be someone at the state level that might be able to help you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we'll, um, we have some of those resources on our website. So I'll make sure to put those in our show notes too. Just some statewide type of things or recommendations for statewide resources. Okay. I've run a resources page for a long time because people always ask me where to go or who to turn to. And every, every couple of years I say I'm going to do it and I've never sat down and just made like a resource list but I probably should do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I bet people would really love that for sure. And I, and I could probably connect you to somebody who knows someone in some kind of topic area. So yeah, people will ask, like, there are things I admit that I know nothing about, or I am not the right person to talk to because people think that I know a lot more than I do sometimes, or I have experiences that I don't. Mm -hmm. So if you ask me, for instance, are there resources for people who are Spanish speaking or, what can or what about sexuality education and puberty and romance and all that? I can be like, that's not my wheelhouse, but this is who whose wheelhouse it is. Please talk to them. Yeah. So I think it's really important that as a community we kind of have that going for us, is we know who to connect who to, and also to make sure that things like that are accessible. So that might be one of my projects while we are dealing with coronavirus is to make a accessible resource list for whoever wants it. Oh, that's such a great idea. Definitely would recommend it. Um, people have been getting a lot out of our resource directories whenever we have a chance to post them. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and just so oftentimes know that there is a person for that. And sometimes that stuff isn't so easy to do a Google search on either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the fact that you know who to go to for that could make a world of difference. Um, yeah. Yeah, so... I'm going to start shifting towards our last couple of questions I always love asking. 
And I'm curious how your answer may change for this one. Uh, so what are you excited about and looking forward to in the coming months? I am excited. I'm not sure what I'm getting towards because as we've all known, our lives have been very much changed in the last couple of weeks, but I'm excited to see what the future holds. I'm excited to keep writing, keep advocating and get finding new creative ways to do so, especially while most of us are staying home or trying to figure out what's next. So I'm working on writing another book. I'm always trying to do something exciting because I really care a lot about this community and I think there are so many ways to make things more accessible. So I am doing the absolute best that I can. Yeah, I can't wait to see. Um, I'll also have to make sure to put in our show notes some of the articles you've written lately, um, especially that Washington Post one and HuffPo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and then lastly, how can people listening to this episode get in touch with you? You can find me on all major social media at Haley Mossart, which we talked about earlier. <laughs> so I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I also can be found online at haleymoss.net. So I am around. Yeah, great. Very accessible too, to get a hold of on social media. And then you also have a podcast too. Do you want to share that as well? Absolutely. And I also podcast at Spectrumly Speaking for women on the autism spectrum and those who love them. That's who our podcast is dedicated to. Every couple of weeks, you can hang out with me and my co-host, who is a licensed psychologist and also an attorney, Dr. Rory Butts. We have a great time every time we release an episode. We usually interview somebody in the community, preferably women and non-binary and trans folks. So we really like to make sure we have that perspective. So I feel like it's a lot of non-men on our show for the most part, but we really are there, especially for women, and we want to be as accessible as can be and have some really valuable conversations. We've talked about everything and we've had all sorts of interesting guests ranging from my mom, who is a fan favorite, Mm. all the way to experts on sexuality and work and race and all sorts of different things. And especially, at least for me, it's really important to get guests on the spectrum. So having a bunch of autistic women has been a total joy for me on the show. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I'll put that too in the show notes because that's such like, I love listening to your podcast too. Um, Thank you. So for those who like listening to podcasts, this is a great resource too. And yeah, I just want to say thank you again for being on the show. It was really great talking to you today. It's great talking to you too. All right. Thanks again to Haley for joining us for today's episode. You can check out everything that we talked about in our show notes on the AGU website. This is also linked in the description of this episode from wherever you are listening today, which leads me to this quick ask. If you found value in this episode and know that others would benefit from listening to this podcast, leave us a rating or review. This helps the community out big time in the long run because this actually pulls us up in search results when people are looking for autism resources, whether that is on Google or within the platform that you're listening to this episode on. So thank you so much for listening to another episode of the AGU podcast. I'm so thankful to be in your earbuds today. And until next time, we're taking it one step at a time. And let's begin with adulthood in mind. And don't forget Autistic Adults Day on April 18th. You can use it as a hashtag and help us spread the word and increase visibility in space for autistic adults to promote their lives in the community and in the workplace. (music) 